Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We uh, thank you for the cool weather that we get to enjoy this winter season. We uh, are grateful that we have this opportunity to open your word, to continue studying the doctrine of the virgin birth. We pray that we would grow closer to you, our Lord, and, and learn more about you and the, this wonderful gift of salvation that you've provided for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, just by way of reminder, because um, uh, today we're going we're gonna to look at um, those who do profess Christ, they profess to believe in a Jesus, um, but not the biblical Jesus, not the true Jesus. So, um, just by way of reminder, right, our doctrine of the virgin birth, Christ takes on himself a true body, right, flesh and blood, uh, blood body, just like ourselves, he has a reasonable soul. And he was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, right? Comes upon the Virgin Mary, and um, she conceives that way. Um, and he is of her substance and born of her, right? So everything that makes Mary human makes Jesus human. He has a soul. He has a body. Um, he is conceived, born, raised, everything except, of course, sin, um, and that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, like I said, how does this compare with others? And I think maybe it's helpful that we start with the tamest um, of the ones on your list there, uh, that being the Roman Catholic Church, and then we'll just kind of work our way down. Now, at a very, at a very basic textbook level, we believe the same essential truths as Rome regarding the virgin birth. Everything that we've, we talked about last week that we just kind of went over this morning, right? Where Rome starts to get off the tracks is their undue attention on Mary. Um, you can even kind of subtly hear it in the name of their doctrine, right? They refer to it as the doctrine of immaculate conception, right? The focus is more on the conceiving rather than than from the reform perspective, right, on the virgin birth. <clears throat> the focus is on Christ and his birth. That's what we focus on, not Mary and her conceiving. Right, now, what you need to understand, and, and you see this when you study church history, Rome didn't just wake up one morning and start worshiping Mary. Okay? Like a, a rotten tooth that was left untreated, um, one bad doctrine, one bad idea compounded and just transformed into the next one and the next one, okay? So it kind of went something like this. Hey, guys, Mary's important. Okay, yeah, in the sense that she's an important bib biblical figure. Okay, yeah, I, sure. A couple hundred years later, hey, guys, Mary's the mother of God. Okay, yeah, in the sense that Jesus is fully God and fully man and and, you know, Jesus was born of Mary. Okay, get behind that. Hmm, since Mary is the mother of God and Jesus was sinless, Mary must be sinless too. Whoa, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> since Mary is sinless and Jesus was sinless, and she's Jesus' mother, we should pray to Mary. Wait, I'm sorry, can we please go back to the last one that you just <laughs> mentioned? Mary is the queen of heaven. So... These things compounded, and it took a couple hundred years, right? So I'm being facetious, and I'm simplifying this, but this is essentially how these things happened, okay? 
and you see how what started out as orthodox ended up way out in left field. Okay, they, they, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church isn't even playing the same game anymore. They started out playing baseball, and now they're kicking a soccer ball. Okay? And now, when they refer to Mary as the mother of God, they don't simply mean that Jesus was born from Mary. Their intention is to exalt Mary to a divine level. Okay? They want to lift her up to the level of God. This is idolatry and blasphemy of the highest accord. Okay? I know none of you believe this, but I, I need to say it anyway. Okay? Mary is not the queen of heaven. There is nothing biblical to support such a title. We do not pray to Mary. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. We've studied this doctrine already. right? And Mary was not sinless. She was conceived and born through natural generation, just like every other person in this world. Okay? <clears throat> and you know, the idea of, of Mary being sinless really ignites a lot of these other, other false doctrines about her. But, but let's work through that one for a minute. Because for those that don't know, when Rome says the Virgin Mary, they mean that Mary was a virgin her whole life. <clears throat> and this is wrong for three reasons. Okay? And um, here's my favorite one. If Mary remained a virgin after she gave birth to Christ... Mary would have been in sin. How can you say that? Well, listen to Paul. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3-4, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then... Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, here's the fun part. If Mary denied her husband conjugal rights, in other words, she remained a virgin, right? She was in sin, according to Paul. Okay? And that conflicts with other Catholic doctrines, right? Namely, that Mary was sinless, right? So the Catholic Church has two doctrines that conflict with each other. Either Mary was a virgin her whole life and sinless because she denied her husband, or she was not a virgin and she obeyed scripture and remained sinless. But what she can't be is a virgin her whole life and sinless. And of course, she's neither of those, okay? <clears throat> she's a virgin until Jesus is born and she's as sinful as the day is long. Okay, and that leads me to my second point, why this doctrine is wrong. Jesus had siblings. He had siblings. <clears throat> Matthew 1, 24 through 25, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, Mary has already proven her fertility, right, with the birth of Jesus. And then we read here in Matthew that Joseph has lain with his wife, right, after Jesus' birth. And there are several other texts in Scripture that mention Jesus had brothers and sisters. I'm going to read from one of them. And keep in mind, the one that I'm about to read from, right, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue at this point, right? The, the people know him. They know his family, okay? 
This is from uh, Matthew 13, verse 55 and 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And this, this last part, these things, that's, that's in reference to his teaching with the, the parables. But the point here is that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Some of them are, are actually named here. Now, Rome is going to try to say two things about texts like this. They're going to say brothers actually means cousins. No, 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 no. That's wrong because the Greek word for physical brother is used here. Okay, there's a Greek word for cousin, and that's not what's used here. Okay, the other argument they're going to try to make is they develop this theory that Joseph had children from another marriage before he got to marry. Where do they get this? Beats me. Why do they do this? Well, that's to support their doctrine that Mary is a virgin their whole life. <clears throat> and even if, it, even if this is true, I'm just curious why this, this gaggle of kids, right, is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture earlier on, right? How about their trip to Bethlehem or Egypt or back to Nazareth, right? And that's the third reason this doctrine is false. It's simply not taught anywhere in Scripture, nor is it necessary. This is purely a man-made invention to support other rather odd and, and, and false claims. Mary has to be a virgin her whole life so the Catholic Church can look at her and say, she is holy. And because she is holy, Jesus is sinless. No, Jesus is sinless because he was conceived and born of the Holy Spirit not because of anything to do with Mary. What it boils down to is that Rome confuses virginity with sinlessness. I don't really understand why they conflate the two, but they do. So, all of this to say Mary was not a virgin her whole life, nor was she sinless, and both of these teachings go against Scripture and inspire other false teachings within the Catholic Church. Now, that's Rome. Everyone else we're about to talk about uh, is both reading from the wrong book and do not believe in the same Jesus. Okay, so there's that little disclaimer. Um, so with that, next up to bat, we have Islam. Now, Muslims are interesting because in the Quran, they, they have a, a whole chapter dedicated to Mary and they have specific teachings and beliefs on Jesus as well. Uh, in fact, when you're talking about Mary in the Quran, they actually refer to it as the chapter of Mary. Uh, and for those who don't know, in the Quran, a chapter is called a surah, uh, a verse is called an ayah. So, um, actually, I have I brought my copy of the Quran. Uh, yes, I have a copy. I uh, bought it while I was in seminary and needed it for a class. It's actually a pretty interesting class. Um, so, I'm going to read from my copy. This is from uh, Surah 19, or chapter 19, uh, and let's see here, this is going to be, I, don't, I had a typo in my notes, it should be uh, ayahs or verses 16 to 26, I don't know what you have there in your handouts, but 
had to type it had to type on my notes here. Okay. So this is what it says in the Quran about the virgin birth and Mary. <clears throat> Mention in the scripture the story of Mary. She withdrew from her family to a place east and secluded herself away. We sent our spirit to appear before her in the form of a normal human. She said, I seek the Lord of mercy's protection against you. If you have any fear of him, do not approach. But he said, I am but a messenger from your Lord. Come to announce to you the gift of a pure son. She said, how can I have a son when no man has touched me? I have not been unchaste. And he said, this is what your Lord said. It is easy for me. We shall make him a sign to all people, a blessing from us. And so it was ordained. She conceived him. She withdrew to a distant place, and when the pains of childbirth drove her to cling to the trunk of a palm tree, she exclaimed, I wish I had been dead and forgotten long before all this. But a voice cried to her from below, Do not worry. Your Lord has provided a stream at your feet, and if you shake the trunk of the palm tree towards you, it will deliver fresh, ripe dates for you. So eat, drink, be glad, and say to anyone you may see, I have vowed to the Lord of mercy to abstain from conversation, and I will not talk to anyone today. So, based on what we just read, and if you want to, if you want to take a look at this, you're more than welcome to. Um, <clears throat> hopefully, you caught some of the parallels. Um, Muslims believe that Jesus was the son of Mary, right? He was conceived without a human father. Um, and an angel of sorts appears to announce his birth as, as, quote, the gift of a pure son, right? Mary asks, how can I have a son when no man has touched me? I've not been unchaste, right? So this is, this is sort of like Mary's question in, in Luke 1, 34, uh, where she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin, right? So th there are some similarities in what we believe. Um, here's where the road really starts to diverge, Right? There's no mention of Joseph, the inn, or the manger. Um, it's said that Mary withdrew from her people. In other words, she ran away from her home, from her family, right? She's outside the city. Uh, she gave birth under a palm tree that provided her nourishment during the labor and the birth. Um, and here's the big one, right? Jesus is not God. Uh, Muslims will say, uh, this, is, this is pretty interesting, Muslims will say that just as Adam was able to be formed, without a human father, right, or, or mother, um, Adam wasn't God. And so the same can be true or said of Jesus. God simply has to say, be, and it's so. And this is, this is from the Quran also. This is uh, chapter 3, 30, uh, verse 39. In God's eyes, Jesus is just like Adam. He created him from dust, said to him, be, and he was. So this is why they believe Jesus was simply a human prophet. Okay? He has no authority or partnership with God. He's, he's simply the messenger of God. Now, for those of you wondering, and I know some of you are, why God, or Allah, right, is referred to as we or us in what we just read, here's the Muslim answer. The we is a collective singular. Okay? It's a literary tool. It's used to show respect or glorification to Allah. It's not used to represent the Trinity. So if you try to read the Trinity into that, they're going to vehemently deny it. Okay? Now, 
I wrote an entire apologetic paper um, discounting Islam, specifically their use of the Gospels. They refer to it as the Injil, um, which is interesting because Muslims believe you should read the Gospels, our accounts of the Gospels. Um, they call it a worthy text, but they say it's been corrupted. Easy to rebut that argument. Uh, if that's something you're interested in, let me know. We can talk some more. But suffice it to say, this is not a true historical account of Jesus' birth, and this is not the Jesus that we believe in. Next up to bat, we have Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, also, please, please keep in mind, I am not an expert by any means in any of these religions. I have read some of their texts. I've studied enough of them to have a basic understanding. Okay? But in regards to Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that a God, little g, Jesus, Jesus is a God, sorry, little g, but not God himself. Big, big G, right? They hinge this argument on a faulty understanding of the Greek article in John 1.1. Uh, I don't recommend you engage in Jehovah's Witnesses in this argument uh, because they know it backwards and forwards. Uh, to be honest, they probably know it better than you. Um, they know their Bibles very well. And unless you know Greek, this is not the path you want to take with them. Uh, funny, funny story, though. Uh, a Jehovah's Witness uh, did knock on the door of an old pastor of mine, and they tried this Greek argument with him. So uh, he said, okay, hold on a minute. So he went back in his study, grabbed his Greek Bible, and he said, here, show me a Greek article. Just point to any Greek article. He said, here, I'll do you one better. And he flips to John 1, 1 for them. He says, here, point to the article that you're even talking about. And they were just like, uh. So the thing with Jehovah's Witnesses is they, they are taught to memorize this argument. But they don't actually understand the language. They don't actually understand the context of what they're arguing. They're just taught from a very young age to just memorize this argument. Okay? They don't understand the context behind what they're arguing. <clears throat> the other big problem with Jehovah's Witnesses is they believe in the virgin birth as recounted in the Gospels, but with a unique twist. They will say that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. Oh, yeah. Essentially what they do, and I'm kind of summarizing the argument in a little package here, but essentially what they do is, is they look at the actions of Michael and they compare them to the text of Jesus and they say, well, Jesus and Michael both do some of the same things and they both fight Satan and they command angels and they have a loud, unique, thunderous voice. And therefore, since they have the same characteristics, um, they're the same person. Yeah, that makes sense. And Jesus talks a lot about his pre-human existence in Scripture all the time. So, I mean, it only makes sense, right? The ultimate conclusion, then, is that the archangel Michael becomes Jesus when he's born, and he's, he's Jesus in his pre-human existence, and then when Jesus goes to heaven again after his time on earth, he becomes the Archangel Michael again. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we'll go with that. And keep in mind, too, Jehovah's Witnesses don't read from the same Bible that you and I do. Okay? They read from what's called the New World Translation. Uh, this was released specifically by and for Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> okay. Now, the last one I want to mention is Mormonism. And just like 
every other false religion we've mentioned up to this point, they're reading from a different book. Most of you know it, the old Book of Mormon, right? Written by 17-year-old Joseph Smith. Oh, well, technically, it was written seven years later in 1830 after he had his vision by his angel when he was 17. So let's be, let's be truthful here. But nevertheless, it ain't the Bible, okay? And in the Book of Mormon, we read that Jesus was the spirit child of the heavenly father and the heavenly mother, Mary. The father chose Mary, and through divine procreation, we get Jesus. Jesus is simply the firstborn of many spirit children. As a result, this means there was a time when the son was not. Okay, Christ had to be created. Now, some Mormons will say, no, 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 we believe Jesus is eternal. You be careful there, okay? Because what they mean is that Jesus will always be eternal, not that he has always been eternal. Okay? Now, there are a lot of other, <clears throat> shall we say, interesting things involved in Mormonism that we are not going to get into, but suffice it to say, when Mormons say, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus, they most certainly do not, uh, at least not the Jesus of history or the Jesus of the Bible. Okay? Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about are miracles. And uh, let me stop right here and say this is going to be my plug for Pastor's Apologetics class. So if you like this, then go to Pastor's Apologetics class, okay? Um, I think it's important that we address this because a lot of people struggle with believing in miracles. Hopefully, not in this room, but maybe some of the people that you, you talk to, right, have a hard time with it. Uh, so I wanted to equip you with an apologetic response just to to miracles, right? Because the virgin birth is a miracle. And the first thing you want to do when you're talking to someone is, is get an idea of their worldview. Okay? What presuppositions are they bringing to the table? And when it comes to miracles, I think a lot of people, whether they know it or not, sort of blend, especially atheists, sort of blend two worldviews together. Okay? Materialism and secular humanism. What are those? Well, when it comes to materialism, the main belief is that the world exists according to fixed natural laws. Okay? And it will always function that way. Nothing exists except matter and its, its movements and modifications. Okay? In other words, the world can only be explained through the material. On the other hand, secular humanism espouses the notion that, that human beings are capable of ethical and moral decisions, moral judgments apart from God. Now, now, you might be thinking, especially that second one, what does that have to do with the virgin birth? Well, our desire in apologetics is, is not to win arguments. Okay? It's to show that only the Christian worldview adequately accounts for those experiences that we take for granted. Morality, rationality, truth, human dignity, purpose, I, you know, all those things. could list a whole bunch of them. And then show that within that worldview, the virgin birth makes perfect sense. In other words, you need, to, you need to slowly break down the walls of their worldview, and you need to be very careful when you do this, by the way. Shattering someone's worldview can be tricky um, and potentially trigger some hostility from them. Okay? Um, <clears throat> show them how, how they borrow from the Christian worldview. They don't even recognize it. Um, and then build back up the correct worldview 
Okay? And most of the time, this doesn't happen in one conversation. Sometimes it does, but not usually. <laughs> now, our broad argument here is that the virgin birth is an integral element of the Christian worldview, which is essential to make sense of our Christian experience. Okay? And the way I, I usually structure these, depending on the conversation, is really just proof, defense, and then offense. Proof, defense, offense. So let's start with our proof for the virgin birth right now. Admittedly, we're not going to have as much proof for this particular miracle as we will for something like the resurrection of Jesus, right? The resurrection of Christ is one of the most well-attested events in history. But that's not to say we have nothing, right? So let's make our case. Number one, we have Old Testament prophecy. Uh, we have three texts in particular that speak to the arrival of Christ, all from different authors, different times, uh, different places, Okay, let me read from uh, three, three texts. A star, this is number, I'm sorry, this is Numbers 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is Isaiah 7, 14. Actually, you know what, let me, let me comment on that one first. Balaam prophesies there in Numbers a star that pointed to the Messianic Deliverer. Okay, that is fulfilled and recorded with the coming of the wise men, right? The magi who follow a, a star, some kind of celestial event, right? In Matthew 1. We have Isaiah 7, 14, probably one of your biggest ones. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, right? So there, Isaiah prophesies two critical things. Number one, of course, the Messiah will come from a virgin and that his name will be Emmanuel, both are recorded in the gospel accounts. Our third text is Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Micah says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And again, we have record of this, recorded in the gospels, Right? All of these prophecies come true. In particular, the fact that the one called Emmanuel, God with us, will come from a virgin. Now, as Isaiah noted, his name is important too, right? And that's our second proof. He will be called Son of the Most High. Well, wait, I, I thought Isaiah said his name would be called Emmanuel. Well, first of all, Jesus has a lot of names and titles. Okay, second of all, this name is proof that he really is God with us. If you remember, we read in Luke 1.32, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. This name for the true God comes from Genesis 14, where Melchizedek, king of Salem, identifies Yahweh as God Most High. It became a common title for the Lord among monotheistic Israelites, especially in the Psalms. Whereas John the Baptist is prophet of the Most High, Luke 176, Jesus is Son of the Most High. This gives further credence to Isaiah's prophecy, as well as the rest of Scripture, right? That he really is Emmanuel, God with us. And that leads us to our third proof, the angelic encounters. Now, when it comes to the virgin birth, both Mary and Joseph have uh, pertinent, shall we say, angelic encounters. <clears throat> We've already read of Mary's encounter from Luke 1, and, and then we have Joseph's visit 
uh, in Matthew 1. Both authors recount the same story. Each is visited by an angel. The angel confirms to both of them that, yes, they were married. Yes, Mary is a virgin. She uh, became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Uh, no, she did not commit adultery. Um, and you will call the baby Jesus, right? Now, I know some of you are probably thinking at this point, Travis, you can't use the Gospels in the Bible to prove your point. Isn't that circular reasoning? You know, First of all, the Bible is the highest authority in the world. So why wouldn't I use it to make my case? Okay? Second of all, the Gospels are accurate historical accounts. There's cer- now, there's certainly more than that. Okay? But at the very least, they are accurate accounts of history. And you can call this our fourth point if you want. Right? We have the Gospels. We have the Bible. The, 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 the Word of God. Use it. Okay? Luke says... In uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke was a physician and a historian. You know, some of the, some of the people will say that the Gospels were, were just political propaganda for the early Christians, uh, for the church, but, but nothing could be further from the truth. Because in reality, Jesus looks good, and everyone else pretty much looks bad, right? We hear Jesus saying things like, do you, do you still not understand? Oh, ye of little faith, right? Peter denies Jesus, and he's one of the earliest leaders in the church, right? Thomas doubts. We have women's accounts of what actually happened at the tomb, the resurrection, right? And... That's testimony. Women's testimony was not readily believed or received or relied upon, right? We get the bare bones truth. I mean, I could go on with other examples. Other worldviews have to explain these historical facts. Our Christian worldview can make perfect sense of them, but how do they? Therefore, it's unreasonable to reject the Christian worldview and, consequently, it's unreasonable to deny this specific event, the miracle, the virgin birth, right? And think of it, think of also the way that these doctrines connect, right? If there is, if there is a personable, absolute God, then we must be sinners against that God because we don't always do what's right. And in that case, we deserve judgment. So we need someone to make atonement for us. And a, a mere human can't do that. But if God takes on a human nature, he certainly could make atonement for us. He then has the power and authority to be the mediator. He, and, he, and he would receive all the glory. The incarnation makes perfect sense in the Christian worldview. Now at this point, we switch to defense. Right? Our goal here is to show that objections to miracle, uh, miracles are based on non-Christian presuppositions. And thus, they beg the question against the Christian. Okay? Miracles are based on non-Christian presuppositions, and they beg the question against the Christians. Okay? In other words, they simply take for granted, they simply take for granted that Christianity is false, and they assume that our worldview is false. They just, they just assume it. Now, there's usually two types of arguments that people make. Okay? <clears throat> 
These are, these, are, these are your $5 words for the day. Wrote them in your notes, okay? Metaphysical and epistemological. Don't worry. Metaphysical, this is the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge. I'm, I'm sorry, that's epistemological. Metaphysical is the branch of philosophy that studies basically the fundamental nature of things, okay? Reality, okay? Epistemological is the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge, right? How do we, how do we know what we know, okay? <clears throat> the difference between the two when it comes to the arguments, okay? The metaphysical argument will say miracles don't happen because they can't happen. The epistemological argument, which is usually the less stronger of the claim, will say regardless of whether miracles can happen or not, you just you shouldn't believe that they can happen. Okay? Most people are going to use the first argument, the metaphysical. Okay, so let's start there. In the metaphysical argument, they're usually going to say a miracle is by definition a violation of the law of nature. But the laws of nature can't be violated. And if if they if they could, then they wouldn't be laws, right? So miracles are therefore impossible. Let me give you two responses to that. Two ways to respond to that. Number one, miracles don't have to be defined as laws. They don't have to be defined as laws. Biblical miracles don't need to be understood as laws of nature. Okay, Rather, they are events with theological significance that are highly improbable given the laws of nature. Let me say that again. Biblical miracles are events with theological significance that are highly improbable given the laws of nature. Okay? Let me, let me give you a little analogy. Tell you a little story. Okay? In 1952, a DC-9 airliner, it exploded over Czechoslovakia. A stewardess fell 31,000 feet from that plane. That's six miles. She survived. Now, there's other stories like this effect. I think you can go look some of them up on YouTube. You actually watch them happen. Okay? Now, some would look at that story and say, that's a miracle. But did that break any of the laws of nature? Nope. The plane exploded, gravity took over, and she fell. This is a phenomenally improbable event. But it happened. Take, for example, the parting of the Red Sea. What happened there? A wind came and pushed the waters. That's what we read in Scripture, right? All consistent with the laws of nature. All improbable, but still consistent with the laws of nature. And yet, it happened at the moment Moses lifted his staff. Here's a second way you can respond to this metaphysical argument, right? that it's a violation of the laws of nature. <clears throat> the laws of nature don't have to be understood as inviolable. Okay? In other words, that they, they can't be broken. <clears throat> there is a, actually a debate among philosophers about this idea of a, of a law of nature, these, these things that we take for granted. Okay? One way to understand them is that they are a description, or the, the, the regularities or the orders in nature. Okay? They describe how things normally occur. If you hold a pen and you let it go, right, it's going to fall, right? 
if this is your understanding, it's still then possible for events to go against these laws. We, we may call them exceptions or abnormalities. Right? A law of nature will only say how things normally occur, not whether they will always go a certain way, okay? or whether they have to go that way. This word violation, that something's a violation of the law of nature, it really prejudices the definition and how we understand miracles. I mean, we violate laws all the time, right? Moral laws, laws of logic, laws of the land. So, I mean, let's be honest, laws can be violated. This, this metaphysical argument begs the question, okay? People who don't believe in miracles often define the term in a way for miracles not to occur. Well, well that's cheating. <laughs> that, that's, that's just word games, okay? You can't do that. So don't fall into that trap, okay? Don't let people do that to you. Now, let's look at the other one, the, the epistemological argument, okay? Remember, this is the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. <clears throat> this argument is against the rationality of a miracle claim. It simply says that if someone says they saw a miracle, it's irrational to accept that claim, okay? And they, they usually structure this argument in one of two ways. Okay, let's look at the first one. We should always judge our present experiences in light of our past experiences. And our past experiences tell us events uniformly follow the laws of nature. So a, a miraculous event would therefore contradict our past experiences. So we should find an answer when we see something like that that doesn't involve a miracle and then apply it to our present experiences. Everybody tracking on that, right? A miracle would contradict your past experience. Okay? David Hume, he's a, a noted atheist. He touts this argument, um, and there's, there's two problems with this logic. Okay? Number one, it stacks the deck against miracle claims. It, it, it just makes it impossible to accept a miracle at all. Basically, it doesn't matter what you see or hear, you can't accept a miracle. Period. End of story. Uh, and, and that really makes it implausible to accept this argument, even on the face of it. Um, think about the resurrection for a moment. If you saw someone that you knew very well, walked with them for, for three years, right? You trust this person. Um, <clears throat> you've eaten with them, you shared meals, all these things, right? And of course, we're talking about Jesus. And then they're killed. You see them die right in front of your eyes. And, and, and everyone says this happened, right? And then all of a sudden... A couple days later, you're sharing a meal together. And he's got holes in his body. Would you not believe that they came back to life? Well, I've never experienced anyone coming back to life before, so then it must not be true. Well, it assumes our present experiences don't give us grounds to modify our past experiences or, or what we already know. Okay, The problem with that is how did you get your past experiences in the first place? They were present experiences. Okay? So our present experiences should contribute to our knowledge. Here's the second problem with this uh, argument. If this objection were sound, it would rule out learning anything new about the world. Okay? Uh, including the laws of nature themselves, by the way. I mean, imagine uh, a, a person who's in a, a remote tribe in Africa, 
okay, who never saw a cell phone in their life. Um, and would, should he believe you, if we, if we embrace this argument, should he believe you if you go up to him and say, yeah, I've got this box and, and I can talk into it and somebody across the world can hear me and they have a box just like this one and they talk into it and I can hear them? Well, no, he shouldn't because according to his past experiences, he's never seen a cell phone. This box is a, is a wicked magic machine and it's, it would be illogical, right? <clears throat> It would also rule out any new scientific experiences or discoveries, right? The problem is this objection, it just proves too much. Um, it not only rules out miracle claims, but it, it rules out accepting anything else. Um, now, here's the other argument, the other big header argument for uh, this epistemological argument that they might say. <clears throat> Even if miracles are possible, um, they must be extremely improbable in principle. There, there must be some more probable explanations of the evidence, okay? And since you should always accept the more probable evidence, it's always irrational to accept the miracle or that a miracle occurred. Okay? In other words, it's more rational that your eyes deceived you or that somebody lied to you, okay? Several people use this argument. Bart Ehrman uh, uses this in his book, Jesus Interrupted, um, and there's a serious flaw in this reasoning, okay? It confuses two different kinds of probability. You might hear them called different names. Uh, this is how I was taught, okay? You got prior probability and subsequent probability, okay? And this is important. Prior probability is the likelihood of an event just kind of taken in general, some sort of abstract with no context to it, okay? And I'm going to give you an example that will help flesh these out. Subsequent probability is the likelihood of an event having occurred based on some background knowledge okay, or, or specific evidence that you have. So this is what we use to estimate whether an event actually occurred based on knowledge that we have or historical evidence, something like that, right? <clears throat> Here's an example. Let's say I have a six-sided die up here, Okay. Now, in the first example, it's a normal die, and I drop it right here. You can't see it. What is the probability that it's going to come up a six? One and six, right? Okay, good. Second example. Now, you have background knowledge. It's a weighted die, and it's weighted toward the six. What's the probability that when I drop it, it's going to come up a six? Greater than, right, good. So it's not completely one, not completely 100%, right? But it's going to be very near one, right? Very high. Now, third example. I throw the die, and it's in front of you. It comes up six, and you could see it with your own eyes. It's a six, okay? What's the probability that you have a six? It's still very, it's still very nearly one. Not quite all the way one, right? You have to account for maybe a trick of the light or some abstract thing, right? But it's, it, what it's not going to be is one and six, okay? In examples two and three, that's subsequent probability, okay? Because you have background knowledge, okay? Scenario one was prior probability, okay? So the point is that something that has a lower probability, um, a lower prior probability, okay, may not have a low subsequent probability if you have, a good, if you have good evidence that, that it occurred, 
Okay, so let's look at the virgin birth. The prior probability of any woman getting pregnant without a man is pretty low, right? But what is our background knowledge? Well, it's a lot of things we've already mentioned before, right? That there, we, there's a God who can do this. We have Old Testament prophecies, people testifying that miracles occurred, teachings about the Messiah. We have the recorded accounts in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus had a reputation for being a miracle worker. Uh, Jesus was no ordinary first century Jew, right? When, when you put all this together, it raises the expectation that a miracle has actually occurred. Or to put it another way, it significantly raises the subsequent probability. Okay? So to say that you can't accept miracles in the case of the virgin birth, right? That only focuses on the prior probability. But that's not the probability that's most relevant here. Now, quickly, and we're almost done here, I promise. We're going to move to the offense. <clears throat> and here what we're trying to do is refute the alternatives and then throw the ball back in their court, right? And really, there's only two alternatives here. Either Mary conceived through Joseph, you know, in other words, it's Jesus is Joseph's baby. Well, well, that wouldn't make sense because Joseph was ready to divorce her, right? Joseph thought she committed adultery. Matthew 1.19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay? The second option was that Mary conceived through another man. Right? In other words, she did commit adultery. To this, I'll say, perhaps. But let's give Mary a little credit here. Okay? She was a practicing Old Covenant Jew. And the punishment for adultery was death. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And actually, it was death by stoning. So, I'm not saying it's impossible that Mary could have conceived a baby by another man, but given the subsequent probability, right, that we just went over, and the promise of death by rock, it seems very unlikely. Okay, so if it's not these two scenarios... All we're left with is that it's what is recorded in the Gospels, right? A miracle occurred. So at this point, we ask the person that, that we're speaking with to account for the virgin birth in their worldview, right? And if they say they accept miracles, then they're borrowing from the Christian worldview. And if they don't, you very gently hold their feet to the fire, right? And the way you do that the last thing I wanted to talk about real quick is the, the ad hominem argument. Now, most people think of this argument as negative, right? It's a personal attack. You're attacking somebody's character. That's not always true. There's good versions of this argument, okay? Ad hominem, uh, ad hominem really means argument to the man, okay? <clears throat> so what you're doing here is arguing from the critic's position. You're showing inconsistencies in the argument. Because if they won't accept the truth of the Gospels, the critic is engaging in double standards. This is how the argument goes. It's pretty simple. I promise we're almost done. <clears throat> Number one, all documents should be evaluated by the same standards. Sorry, all ancient documents should be evaluated by the same standards. Well, if the New Testament is evaluated by the same standards as other ancient documents, then it is historically reliable, at, at least in its major claims, right? If an ancient document is historically reliable, at least in its major claims, then we have good reason to believe those claims. 
The virgin birth is one of the major claims of the New Testament. Therefore, we have good reason to believe the virgin birth was a historical claim. See the flow of logic? We're not actively encouraging, by the way, the critic to treat the New Testament like any other ancient um, historical ancient document. We're saying that if you're going to treat it that way, you need to be consistent. Okay, hopefully that was helpful when you're talking to somebody about miracles. Um, remember, it's all about engaging their worldview. Okay, that wraps up question 37. I know we ran a little bit long today. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> Very good. Let me pray for us real quick. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to live and to die for us, that we can indeed um, believe and study this, this uh, doctrine, this miracle of the virgin birth that is the, uh, a true pinnacle uh, event in history and is so important for our salvation. Um, we thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day, for the opportunity to come together as your people and worship. Uh, pray that you would be with us through your Spirit and that our worship of you would be pleasing in your sight. Please bless our fellowship this morning and this, uh, this afternoon. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.